Hello, welcome to the Future Proof podcast from the north of England with Sarah Hall and Stephen Waddington. We'll be talking about what's hot and what's not on the internet in marketing, the media and public relations. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Stephen. So, it's Sunday. We haven't done one of these before on a Sunday, but it's the end of half term. I don't know about you, I'm ready to get back to work. Yes, it's been fun but relentless. (laughs) A little bit of structure is not going to hurt. Right. Plenty of stuff going on to talk about from a comms perspective. I thought we'd start with the big story of this week, the Ox- Oxfam scandal. In fact, there's two, isn't there? The, o- the Oxfam scandal. And breaking today is Brendan Cox, of course. Resigning. stood down from two charities he set up in Joe Cox's memory. Yeah. And obviously, as ever, these things being played out in the media, the first story is that it's a PR disaster. Uh, and this is not uh, about a PR disaster as far as I'm concerned. As, as ever, it's a business issue. And in these particular cases, uh, it's about accountable leadership. This is the story, the Oxfam story, where um, yeah, operatives had, in Haiti have been found to be wanting. Yeah, they've been basically paying uh, people for sex. And then there's been rumours of kind of sex parties where uh, peers have been leaning on others not to blow the whistle. And it's all been uncovered. Oxfam particularly interesting because... Um, the CEO came out uh, quite strongly in a Guardian article uh, later on in the week. I think it was Thursday. I shared it on Twitter. And we'll put it in the show notes. But um, he came out and said that he felt he hadn't been well represented and that the headlines were um, all about the charity rather than the, the issues they were facing because it had become a political issue uh, rather than about governance. And he started to kind of explain how things had happened. Re- really quite fascinating article uh, in terms of it started to get more in-depth into the, the nitty-gritty this, of it This is all. a really old story, though, isn't it? I mean, this this alleged scandal, well, it is a scandal, the Oxfam's admitted to it, took place 2011? Yeah, so what, from what I understand and from memory, um, the news first broke a couple of years back when um, uh, one of their uh, members of staff left What's happened since is that um, the media have discovered that this guy did leave and he wasn't sacked and then subsequently went on to work for another charity. And, um, of course, immediately there's been a massive outcry about this. Um, And it since turns out that actually um, there was a deal done, which as they dug into the issue and found out the scale of the problem, they used this particular person to, they bargained with him basically, to get greater access to to work out how how deep and the the actual scale of the problem was. And so they could clean that up and find solutions. Uh, And he subsequently left the company quite quietly but he wasn't sacked uh he then went to work for another charity uh, and they didn't provide a reference but they confirmed he was working but because it was in another country um that the nuance of that was perhaps missed in the fact that you know across in the uk if you don't provide a reference it's it's quite telling you know normally that's a signal not to employ someone so very complicated case lots going on and um it is interesting because it has become a bit of a political football immediately you know this is becoming about should we be you know helping with the scale of international aid that the uk is and it's become much more than Oxfam itself. Well, so, but, so we, we've seen celebrities desert the charity. We've seen uh, people working in, in the frontline volunteers in, in their shops, wavering in their support. Uh, they found, you know, sorry, the media's gone to donors who have you know, threatened to pull funding. Um, but yeah, the, the, I think the thing that struck me is this kind of plays into an agenda at the moment, doesn't it, in the media and also in political circles where... Um, funding for charities and particular overseas aid 
is is under scrutiny, and you know the UK is wanting to retrench and and um, actually, if you're you know if you're a hardened cynic, um, put all its money into Brexit. Well, yeah, well, it wants to claw back any money it can get. We're, we're in austerity. We're trying to work through uh, Brexit, and we don't have a plan. Um, it is. You know, it does play to a certain political agenda. Um, I just, it's it's a really interesting one. So you can unpick it in so many different ways. I mean, you look at it in terms of governance for an organisation. Obviously, uh, it's been found wanting. It says, Oxfam says, that actually it's at the forefront of best practice within the charity sector, which is a little bit alarming. Um, and then it's been used as a, as a scapegoat. Um, but it's it's actually really fascinating to anybody who works particularly in PR internationally because you always have this issue of actually what are happening across boundaries well, well, and different cultures. Okay, so, so working in an international organisation, you know, um, th- there's always demarcation between um, um, the headquarters and, and field offices and then between individual field offices. And, you know, there's a level of... of disintermediation and, and discourse there here you've got layered on top of this the fact that this charity is working in um in countries where you know clearly other aid organizations and other governments are with that to all intents and purposes it's developing markets so you know the the traditional rules of government that we understand in the west are, are, are going to fracture right yeah, absolutely. I just I find it fascinating. I think it's a really good PR case study because um, what has clearly happened is a few years back they have recognised an issue, they've sought to to find the solution and, and clean up their practice and put procedures in place to stop it happening again. While doing that, they found a bigger problem. Mm-hmm. And I think where they stepped wrong here was that the fact that they weren't honest and transparent about that. And that's Originally. why this is the issue now. And this is the scale so, of the problem. So the sto- had they, I do believe, had they come at that point and said, this was the issue, we have now found this, yeah. it would have been a whole different story. And it's a, that's an issue that a lot of agencies come against with clients daily. I mean, yeah. it was, it, we've probably all had a client at one point where we just, we've had to have a discussion and said, right, we've found out this. What do we do? And yeah. the right thing to do is always to be transparent. So that, that I mean, this story dates from 2008. And, yeah, the cynic in me is a little dubious as to why, it, you know, at uh, this moment in time when a decade later when um, international aid is under scrutiny, it's suddenly... Head, creating headlines in in the Sunday Times and other media throughout the week. Not to say that it shouldn't have done, but you know you've got to wonder why this moment. What's the Brendan Cox story? So um, this is something I just picked up this morning because I couldn't understand why he was trending. And um, for alleged, he stepped down from the two charities he created after his wife Joe Cox was was murdered. So Joe um, Cox, the Labour MP, that, murdered before the last election. Absolutely, before the referendum. Um, so he created two charities, uh, but he stepped down from those because of allegations of sexual misconduct. Now he denies one of them, but ha- has accepted that his behaviour might have been inappropriate so, on other occasions. So Joe Cox is a, is interesting, an interesting person to us. Uh, and 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 Brendan, because you've, I bought you a copy of his book, uh, More in Common, um, which you found uncomfortable reading, didn't yeah, you? Yeah. So there's two things. I mean, I, I was, I think everybody, really, a, you can't fail to be moved by what happened to that family. It's tragic. Um, but secondly, the speech that she made was incredibly inspiring. And um, for the, since the end of last year, I was considering whether to stand on the Labour uh, scheme, which is actually 
um, being created again in her honour, which is to try and create more female leaders within the party. And as part of that, as Stephen said, he bought me the book and I'm still struggling. I'm halfway through it and I'm not going to lie. And you've asked me several times what it is that's bothering me because I keep putting it down and I'm really uncomfortable with it. And it just, there is a... I can understand why he might have wanted to write a fitting tribute to his wife, but I've been uncomfortable from the start and it just doesn't feel completely authentic. And I think it's interesting today because as soon as I read the breaking news and looked into a bit further, I was kind of like, ah, this kind of fits. Now, there's nothing, of course, to do with what's happened in in the news today in the book, as you'd expect. But um, there is this, there's a lot of finger pointing today at Brendan Cox saying, oh, look at you, you you know, you're trying to set all our values and, you know, be our moral guardian. Mm. And which I think is a little bit unfair because, you know, we do need people to kind of set the way and nobody's perfect. But yeah, I think there's that back to this authentic leadership, accountable leadership, you know, you've you know you've got to be honest and and true to who you who you are, uh, and and recognise perhaps if you're not in the right position to be doing that. So, Joe, the speech you referred to that Joe uh, Cox MP made um, um, was a maiden speech in Parliament where she talked about the the need the need for the country to unite um, across. Um, um, so stronger together. Stronger together, yeah, across um, all our various different divides, social, economic, uh, and race. Um, okay, let's move on. Um, and I, I guess a, to to a related space, and that's the Twitter. Much of these, many of these stories are, are playing out on Twitter, um, and it's a place I found increasingly uncomfortable this year because it's just so unpleasant. And from a mental health point of view, I found myself going there less and less because it's impossible to have a conversation with anybody uh, about any issue, seemingly, um, without it becoming politicised and polarised. So, you know, we can talk about Trump, we can talk about Brexit, we can talk about gun control, we can talk about parenting, talk about a book you've read, talk about football, rugby, uh, you know, the, the, the moment you, you, you broach a topic uh, on on Twitter these days, it seems that it, it, <laughs> a ferocious debate uh, immediately ensues and people, frankly, are idiots. Um, I, and, you know, maybe I need a new group of followers or maybe I just need to put it down. Well, I think it's this, we've talked about this fact that there's this now, it's an equal playing field isn't it when everybody can a democratized media yeah Yeah. you can everybody gets a chance to create an account and be on there and this whole issue of just because you have an opinion doesn't make you an expert where people seem to think they are and then um we were listening to radio 4 this morning and this whole debate came up and it is it's obviously becoming increasingly an issue there's a piece in the guardian um by um james graham and he talks about how do we manage this anger? Because actually on the platforms, you know, the different social media platforms, it is absolutely palpable and there is not even civility. And that means that people retrench into their positions, that there is no meaningful debate, there is no room for discussion and they just want things that will... Uh, Reinforce their re- own opinions. Yeah. So, so we've been there though. I mean, let's talk about it. Last autumn, I had a view in terms of the um, nursery, not nursery rhyme, but the uh, fairy tale I was reading to my son as part of his homework. And I made some comments, which I stand by, but you you know, you can't have that kind of debate because immediately people just turned abusive with me. Didn't bother to find out what I'd actually said 
first off. So they're all using a headline from media that is actually uh, factually untrue in terms of saying that I wanted them banned, you know, fairy tales banned, which was absolutely not what I was saying. I was saying that we should use them for their original purpose, which is to, um, you know, talk to children and warn them about different things uh, that happen in life. And I, I happened to find that um, the Sleeping Beauty story didn't work for me in the format it was in for, for the age of my son. Um, but some people didn't like that because it was, you know, I wanted to ban books and that I was being ridiculous and that I had issues as a parent. And you just can't, there's no point trying to engage. And that's what I found distressing in terms of, it would have been quite good to have a debate and talk about actually, is it time to review the literatures out there and the way it's presented and how it's used and perhaps take the dialogue forward. But you just, you just can't do that. The level of hate, I mean, I still get direct messages, emails, sometimes nice ones as well, but there's still a heap of that going on. And, you know, we had a CIPR Influence Live event and Ralph Little, the actor uh, and writer, um, very kindly came along and he talked about the same thing in terms of he tries to engage but he he really struggles particularly on twitter yeah he had a brilliant tip actually for for dealing with the troll on twitter um snark them and then immediately you give them a bit of sass he said (laughs) give them some sass snark them and then immediately mute them so you can't hear the response and you know it 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 doesn't do any good whatsoever apart from making you feel good yeah but i have to say on this though this it seems like a light topic and something oh yeah and hopefully it'll calm down but this is a massive threat to democracy people cannot have an opinion without being shouted down people you know, they, they won't involve in dialogue, which means that you, you know, the threat is that nobody ever gets their their mind changed, their opinion changed no, over so something. That was John uh, John Lotti's, um point this morning on on the um, oh, the broadcasting house or the Today program um, on Radio Four. Where are the safe places to go and have a conversation then? To be persuaded of an argument? I don't. I think they're becoming fewer and fewer, aren't they? Because you know, you, you, um, speakers are being um, um, turned away from campuses well, actually, because they're you know offensive. What? The no platform thing is really interesting. So during this whole referendum malarkey and all the mm. political turmoil we're seeing and the different parties and the way that that was all playing playing out, when that was very fresh, and some of the campuses were saying we don't want this speaker or that speaker, I my initial response was like good because I was very like we must stand firm and protect you know core values and things like that, and. Since then, I've spoken to quite a few people and um, read a lot of, you know, things that we've been discussing right now and the different pieces by really smart experts in the field. And I realise that's wrong because actually what you need is to hear those arguments and then to have someone really smart counter them and explain exactly why. But we need to be exposed to that. And my initial instinct was not was to close it down. Yeah, well, same with the Daily Mail. I mean, we both rallied against that. Um, mm. well, I've, I've thrown loads in the bin in the past. <laughs> um, well, only when it's put something factually incorrect. But but where are the places to you know? Because I'm I've had countless friends now call me a snowflake on Twitter because you know you try You're and tired. engage you try, you try and engage on an issue, you go back once, twice, and I, frankly I give up after two attempts um, because um, got better things to do. And actually, I don't find it that positive. Um, or beneficial to my <laughs> my health and well-being, uh, frankly. Um, but, and what's the point? What is the point? But, you know, I ain't no snowflake. Um, and, and frankly, if I am a snowflake, then we need more snowflakes out there that are willing to, to, to question 
and operate in this middle space where they're they're willing to probe and ask questions because even our journalists aren't doing it. Yeah, and I think the thing is, it's frightening though because of the volume of hate that you can get. People don't stand up because they know that they're going to get the same treatment, and we have to stand up to that. Anyway, back to this guard. Before we move on, back to this Guardian article I was talking about by um, this playwright James Graham, uh, and actually. Um, he makes a really good point. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna read from his article here, and it says, um, and I think it's really important for commerce people. This elections should be national conversations, but Theresa May retreated into simplicity and slogans. We face the most intractable questions in post-war history, and we can only answer them if we have the language to do so. Not Brexit means Brexit. In other words, shut up. You can only advance if you have the tools to discuss complicated problems with the public. I think that's really interesting, actually, because I don't think the level of public debate we have from our leaders no. helps this debate. The, the no, la- there is no debate, isn't no, that the problem? No, it's, it's polarised and it's sound bites and it's... Uh, on, on all sides, and this is not me having a no. go. I mean, that, that's a particular uh, example that I've taken from the um, article, but I think that, that comes across There isn't an opportunity for nuanced discussion. There, are, there absolutely isn't. It doesn't even happen in Parliament anymore. Um, because it's shut down. Uh, and... And um, yeah, I, 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 you know, I have no answers on this. Uh, I'm desperately searching, um, and, and you know, equally, I'm, we, we've seen um, the issue of gun crime um, come up in the U.S. again uh, in the last week because of a horrendous school shooting. Um, and you know, again, that debate is being played out by the the pro and uh, anti-gun lobbies. Uh, and it's completely polarised. There's no nuance at all. There's no no one's prepared to listen t- to um, you know arguments on either side. Let's move on. Um, we mentioned Brexit there. Uh, we've seen uh, the CIPR come out with guidance. In fact, at the end of last year, yeah, um, about the role of, of public relations. I've never known the UK more divided as a country. Um, you know, there have been lame attempts. Uh, we saw another one this week from Boris Johnson to try and unite um, the country behind a vision for Brexit. I think the problem is we haven't got a vision. The government hasn't got a vision for for, for Brexit, and you know, Brexit is belief in in uh, a certain set of values that have yet to be delivered. Um, so inevitably, you know, we're not going to see this change until something actually changes from a policy point of view. Uh, and, and Brexit is delivered in one form or another. Um, the CIPR made this argument that um, public relations practitioners have a role to play in helping organisations um, come to terms with Brexit and provide um, leadership to to employees and, and in the public spaces within which they operate. But I don't see any organisations necessarily stepping forward i think that was part of the research it showed that actually there's been very little movement in that area and it's a great opportunity for pr practitioners to grasp the nettle to use that horrible uh, expression uh, and actually start to push forward here um one of the things we are doing at the institute is working much more closely with the cbi they run um a value of business campaign which um we're obviously supporting and within that the value of product relations to business um, which is a reminder to practitioners and their employers in the business community about our role when we're acting as a strategic advisor. So, so Ketchum, we're uh, advising clients that operate within the European Union to make sure 
they are lobbying uh, for the Brexit outcomes that that they want with uh, any stakeholder that might have a role in influencing either government or um, the European Parliament. Um, you know, but I don't think public relations is going to unite this country at this moment in time. Uh, let's move on. Next story. Uh, PRCA published uh, diversity guidance um, this month. You're across this because I saw you were quoted. Yeah, they've done a really great job. I mean, obviously at the CIPR we have state of profession survey, the results of which aren't uh, available yet. But I have seen a sneak preview and um, everything that PRCA have done is completely borne out uh, by the results. And, and they've done a really brilliant job. And, um, you know, it's a big step forward for the industry. Um, so it's very welcome viewing. Um, what they've done is launched uh, diversity inclu- inclusion guidelines. So it's a really practical resource for anybody in the industry, uh, whether you're an organisation or professional looking to understand why diversity and is inclusivity is important, uh, but also how you can actually go about doing that and making your workplace a, a much fairer place. So a practical toolkit. Yeah, absolutely. Really, really good. And it's uh, great to see that it includes uh, the issue of social and economic diversity as well. Sure. So they, they talk about, you know, they, uh, they split it down as diversity entails the appreciation of differences in age, gender, ethnicity, religion, disability, sexual orientation, education, socioeconomic background and national origin. So that they've, I mean, they've obviously done a huge amount of work in this, looked at the many, many mm. causes um, for, you know, behind the issue because actually as an industry, we're, we're not brilliant. Um, you know, basically, uh, to, according to the PRCA's PR census, 2016 figures um that said that the industry is 91 percent white and 83 percent british um so uh, you know a lot of a lot of work to be done but this is certainly a step in the right direction okay i'm going to move on we actually we haven't done one of these podcasts for about six weeks so we've both created a ton of content um on on both of our blogs um sarah in a role as president of the cipr this year me thinking out loud around a number of different issues and got um, a book brewing um so if you you head to my blog you'll find tons and tons of content i'm trying to work through uh different areas of public relations communications and, and marketing from a um practical planning point of view one of the things i wrote about at the end of last year was this emergence of tech um and artificial intelligence in public relations now i think artificial intelligence is a is a word that's chucked around because it's trendy and in, in vogue but you know there's no doubt that um technology is having a significant impact on our workflow in practice and also in how media is presented to us in in the public sphere so i've written about this um extensively over the last few months uh, and pulled together a, a group of people um, for dinner in in january in london um and that group of people has, has become the genesis of a panel um, that we formed um, at the CIPR to explore this issue over the next 12 months or so. So the first project's kicked off, um, and that revisits um, a project that I ran three years ago called PR Stack. So PR Stack sought to create a database of tools um, in public relations marketing seo and related disciplines tools that help us do our jobs better or more efficiently so there's everything in there we looked at everything from listening right the way through to content development and, and publishing um, and so the first project of the ai panel is an attempt to bring that up 
piece of work up to date uh, under the auspices of, of the CIPR and publish in the next few months uh, a new database of, of tools uh, across the market. So quick call to action. Uh, if you've got a favorite tool that you use as part of your day-to-day -day work or if you're a tool vendor and want to promote your piece of your um, your app or, or um, tool as part of a piece of workflow, please um, head to the form that we'll include in the show notes and just submit it. It'll take you less than two minutes. Um, as I say, we'll, we'll publish those um, in the coming months. We kicked off this project about a week ago. I think we've got 15 or so different um, tools in so far, so some way to go. Right? The original project, PR Stack, characterized around 150 tools. So um, we will publish updates uh, along the way. Have you done any? Have you added a tool? What's your favorite tool, Sarah? Oh, I don't know. Wads.co.uk. Shut up. Uh, <laughs> just because you get a ridiculous number of unique users every month. Yeah, I do crib a lot from your blog. <laughs> I just go to different devices every time. Um, um, I haven't got one. Oh, you must have one. Favourite tool? Hootsuite. Screen grab. Screen, <laughs> screen grab. Oh, that's a good piece of kit. I love screen grab. That's a good yeah. piece of kit. I use it a, a ridiculous amount because I like to keep a folder of all kinds of different things in case I ever need it. <laughs> Scrapbook. I'd, I'd have to say Photoshop Express for tinkering with photos on your iPad. Oh, Probably yeah, one of my favourite. Or any number of listening. You play around on your photos a ridiculous amount. Uh, any number of listening tools. Right, tips. I wanted to uh, plug an event that we're running at at Ketchum. So John Robertson's leading this. Uh, it's an influencer event where we're making sense of the market for anyone that works in in a brand or an organization where they might be wanting to understand how influencers work as part of the marketing mix. We've run you know, numerous campaigns now and gained a good understanding across all forms of, uh, of uh, industry and media. And I'll include uh, details in the show notes but we're bringing together planning listening um, experts from across and execution experts from across the business um, along with a panel of of influencers to to run that so that'll be in the show notes 7th of march incidentally it's my birthday just a coincidence um, send highland park highland park's catch him yeah mm -hmm. uh, you've got something to plug yes so we have a fantastic event taking place for the CIPR on the 14th of March in London. It's part of the 70th anniversary celebrations and we have one of the authors of the Clue Trade Manifesto coming to speak and the talks about whether the internet is disappointed in us and um, basically it's going to examine um, why early web evangelists thought that the web would transform the world um, but it's now and he's going to talk David's actually going to talk about um, did I say who it was David Weinberger he's going to talk about what's of genuine value on the web and um, talk about how we can live up to and benefit from its promise it should be a really good event um, it's on the 14th of March from half past six uh, till about half past nine and um, standard tickets are 15 quid and students can get in for six that's brilliant um, so one of the things I, I one of the things I've been looking at over the last couple of weeks with uh, a view to, to writing a, uh, an essay about it for um, this book idea I'm working on is is about community and the fact that uh, community is a much used and abused word um, on the web um, and actually very few organisations do it well but the Clue Train Manifesto is one of those um, one of those books that theorised how the web might change and and organizations might truly build communities around their organize 
organisation to um, to create influence. Fantastic. It is going to be great. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, he's an interesting guy, if nothing else. Um, well, him and the team that wrote that book. I'd urge anyone to, to read that as well. Um, you're flicking through Twitter here. Have you got anything else to add or are we done? Yes. No, there was one thing and I was just looking for the link. Um, the Women in PR group are doing a lovely initiative um, which is being um, led by them, PR Week and the PRCA. And it's a survey to try and characterise the issues uh, that have come with sexual discrimination in the workplace. So do have a look and, and please do fill that in if you if you get there a moment and you can. What are they looking to ask? They're just trying to um, see how extensive it is, what the issues are, and um, hopefully we know we can look at... Uh, characterise it. Indeed. My favourite word. It is your favourite word. Thank you for listening. If you've got any feedback, you'll find us on Twitter. I'm Wad, Sarah's Hallmeister. Uh, Alternatively, leave a comment um, below the show notes. You'll find this podcast and others that we've created on iTunes and all other good places to find podcasts. Until next time, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Future Proof Podcast with Sarah Hall and Stephen Waddington. You can follow Sarah on Twitter at Hallmeister, that's H-A-L-L-M-E-I-S-T-E-R, and Stephen at Wads, W-A-D-D-S. For more information about Future Proof, visit futureproofingcoms.co.uk. Until next time, see you on the internet.